Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast. Our theme this week is education. Last week, the best-selling author, inspirational speaker and international advisor on education, Sir Ken Robinson, very sadly passed away. His passionate advocacy for a creative approach to education has captivated, encouraged and enthralled audiences across the globe and made millions of people question not only how we learn, but how we live. We dedicate this podcast to him and his astonishing legacy. This week, we're joined by Tara Westover, whose memoir, Educated, tells her story of growing up in a remote corner of the American West with her Mormon fundamentalist family, and how her struggle for knowledge would take her far from the Idaho mountains, over oceans, and across continents to Harvard and to Cambridge. But first, let's hear from teacher and author of A Good Education, Margaret White, and Senior Director of the Global Learning Lab and author of Natural Born Learners, Alex Beard, explore the question of what makes a good education. In his first clip, Alex reflects on how different education systems support young people across the globe. He's joined by teacher, author, and Hay International Fellow, Dylan Moore. So to take one example, Silicon Valley, I went there because I was interested in the role that technology might play both in helping us to prepare for this uncertain future where it's unclear what jobs we'll have or how we'll tackle climate change and these kinds of things, but also to see if it could augment intelligence somehow or give us some way to improve the quality of education for all kids. And I saw some interesting things. Um, I visited a place called Rocket Ship Schools, and they work mainly with... Um, disadvantaged kids in the San Jose area in Silicon Valley, and they're using technology to outsource some teaching. They have this thing called the Learning Lab, um, and I went into this room um, where I saw 125-year-olds, each in purple polo shirts and wearing headphones, um, each one with a laptop, and the room was sort of eerily silent, save for the soft sound of like tapping fingers on keys. And these kids were drilling maths or English uh, problems on a laptop, and they'd spend about 60 minutes or, or 90 minutes doing that every day. Um, and the software that they were using was adaptive, so it had some basic AI in it, and it was tailoring itself to their particular needs um, or strengths as they were going along. And it was eerie, but it was also working. So those kids, on admittedly the narrow measures of sort of English and maths that they look at, um, to evaluate school quality in that area. Those kids were doing better than other kids from their backgrounds, and it was freeing up teacher time to do more differentiated instruction, to work with small groups of students that needed the support. Um, at the same time, technology is not a solution. Clearly, you have something like uh, Khan Academy, and Khan Academy is a wonderful thing, so that was this online learning program that was set up by a guy called Sal Khan, who started making videos for his cousin, who he was tutoring in maths on the other side of from one side of the US to the other. And it turned into this huge online compendium of videos. And it's amazing. It means that any child anywhere in the world with an internet connection and some way to access it can now get for free access to all of these maths tutorials, taking you from first grade through to the end of your education. But of course, what you then learn is that the people that use these kinds of resources are the ones who already have the higher levels of education. So actually, you find that technology can um, fuel inequality rather than being a, a solution for it. Mm. 
if I could give you one more example. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that these glimpses of hope have all got contained within them, some quite depressing stuff as well. <laughs> that's true. I mean, certainly with technology, I think and, that's and the certainly case. With the, I mean, thinking about the, the, what you said about the narrow measures of English and maths being a kind of relentless focus, I mean, I think that's something that we, we all recognise. I mean, but did you want to give another I mean, example could, with, uh, with some hope to. in it? <laughs> well, I from mean, anywhere in the world. Yeah. I was, I was interested. I mean, just thinking about this is not necessarily the most hopeful example, but there are these schools in the U.S. called KIPP schools. Mm. I don't know if you've come across them, but they are a 20-year-old chain of about 200 schools all across the U.S., and they work specifically with um, disadvantaged kids in uh, mainly in urban. Um, centers, and they were founded about 20 years ago with the express intention of giving an academic education um, to disadvantaged students. And they did it by basically creating this highly routinized, quite disciplinarian environment and extending the school day using these motivational slogans like work hard, be nice, climbing the mountain to university, basically busting in the the sort of youngest, most enthusiastic teachers they could find who would be willing to work 80-hour weeks. And they sort of managed over the course of 10 years to create a model which did actually get students whose normal entry rates to university would have been about 16%, entering universities at about a rate of 96%. So it was really working. These kids were going to university um, against the odds. And it was amazing, and it is amazing. And um, there's a brilliant book that they've written about it which tells the story. However, what they found was that once the students that they had been teaching made it to university, um, because they'd been existing in this highly stylized environment where everything was sort of controlled for them, as soon as they got there, they, they began dropping out because they hadn't learned to be independent because they still had come from difficult backgrounds where they didn't have family support, where they didn't have others that could look out for them, someone they could talk to when things became difficult. And so now they're taking on that problem. They're asking, what do we need to do to our school model um, to ensure that these kids do brilliantly well academically, um, but also develop the broader yeah. character attributes that will allow them to succeed long term? In this next clip, Margaret assesses the importance of character and how we can educate young people to be strong contributors to the community. Of course, that if we only um, assess children's attainment in school according to a very narrow measure of criteria, then the chances are that we'll end up um, stringing children out along some sort of linear um, line in which some achieve and some appear to fail. Whereas if we're looking at the roundedness of a child, if we're looking at a holistic education, then we can see that some children will be likely to find certain areas easier than others, or they might have a strength at a particular time in one area, and at other times or in other areas, they'll find that they have greater strength that they can build on. And I think developing a, a pupil as a holistic being is very important, and part of that is character. And in the model which I've developed in my book, it comes back to this idea we mentioned earlier about the individual and the community. I think that there are characteristics which need to be inward-looking, and grit, perseverance is perhaps one of those, and there are characteristics which need to be outward-looking, such characteristics as compassion and respect and service. And so I think that when we're talking about character in school, 
We need to think about not only how can we be educating children so that they can be strong people themselves, but also how can we educate children so that they are strong members of a community, so that they know that they have got a contribution that they can make, and that other people have a contribution that they need to benefit from too, because it's a two-way process, and none of us can exist and flourish in isolation. How does that happen, though? Do you, we do, you're not advocating you know, one period a week of character studies? A absolutely not, no. I think it, this is a key thing, is that character education should run through education like letters through a stick of rock. Mm. That everywhere, if we believe that respect and integrity are important, then we should see those in every part of the school. We should see teachers treating children with respect, children treating each other with respect, including those who will be different, because actually we're all different, and uh, we need to learn to respect each other uh, despite and because of those differences. We need to see these things played out in the classroom, played out in the lunch queue, played out on the playing field or in the drama studio, that actually wherever we are operating in school, we have the same set of values and those are promoted both uh, consciously but also subconsciously. They say that data is the new oil, but here Margaret and Alex talk about the limitations of leaning too heavily on data in education and how some countries have developed their teaching practice to empower all learners. Data is useful insofar as it helps us to improve our teaching and know what we need to do to help children to move on. And it may be that we, give, we administer a, a reading test which will help us to um, pick up if there are children who have a specific difficulty or need some kind of intervention or help. But if we regard what we can measure as what is important, mm. then I think we're in danger of losing something really significant about education, which yeah. is actually we're talking about development of people. Mm. And that children are very precious, they're very vulnerable, they're very multifaceted, uh, they've got huge potential. And we need to make sure that we're looking after all of that and that we're caring and loving for the whole child and making sure that we're providing them with something which is well thought through, which is carefully meeting their needs for an uncertain future, as we all uh, are often reminded about, but that actually uh, data has its place within that but is not the only thing that matters or necessarily the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, I've heard people in the UK say that... Um, if something can't be measured, then it doesn't exist. People in education in the UK. And I think it's, I mean, it's an interesting <laughs> philosophical debate, but it also feels to me fundamentally wrong in a profession that's so human, so much to do with human relationships and like, the development of full human faculties. Um, data will only ever give you so much. And I think I can see why it's attractive to governments. You can create these big systems where you have this sensation of being in control and setting targets and you feel like you're managing it. But it fundamentally reduces what education uh, can be to something smaller and narrower. And I think about education systems that are big on data, like education in China or in the UK, and what's happening, what that means in terms of the narrowing of curriculum. Yeah. I think that's inevitable. And then countries, on the other hand, like Finland, um, where they're no less clear about where kids are in their learning day to day, but you're not relying on a single centralized data system to find out where students are, but rather trusting teachers to know the students in their classroom 
as individuals and as a group and to make appropriate interventions. And I went to see um, one teacher there who was doing something really fantastic, um, this math teacher um, who, yeah. at the beginning of his yeah. class, he um, basically put up a multiple choice question on the board and asked the students in the classroom to kind of beam in answers to this question. And then I thought he was going to give them the answer, but he didn't. He said, now turn and talk at your tables. They were all sitting in groups of four um, and discuss, you know, what answer did you give? Why did you give the answer? Um, and then he asked them to beam their answers in again. And again, he displayed a bar chart with their results. And the bar chart had changed, and the kids had taught each other. And he never told them which answer was right or wrong. He sort of yeah. let that be the case. And he saw his whole job as being coaching the students around how to learn individually and together. He'd been reading all this stuff about how Google makes its most successful teams. And afterwards, I said to him, you know, um, Pekka, what do you do if kids in your classroom sort of fall behind on this model? Um, you know, coming from the UK system, this was my first concern. Um, and he said, <laughs> he said, uh, what is behind? You know, yeah. we don't have this idea yeah. in our education system. You need to delete that idea from your understanding of what education is. Each student is where they are, and we are going to help them to get where they need to get to mm. next. That's what my job is. And yeah. I feel like that attitude suffuses. So they don't have red, amber, green color coding of students. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> they, did. Yeah. They, had, they had actually a fun thing with emojis, of like crying face to like thumbs up. Yeah. And, but the students chose themselves, and every student had a table of like all the topics, how they felt about how they were doing on each one. And he didn't use that to, to evaluate them. They then showed that to other students. Mm -hmm. And so the, they, a student in the classroom could see where somebody was really feeling good about a topic, like thumbs up emoji. And they would go and ask them, can you help me to learn this um, thing? And then at the end of time, he even got the students to input their own grades in the national system. Like, he has to press the button, <laughs> but he asked them, what grade, yeah. what grade do you think you got this year, and had a conversation with them, and then they would give themselves their own break. The narrowing of the school curriculum and the growth of social media as the main source of news means it's more important than ever to equip young people with the skills to discern what is fact and what is fake. We need to give children the tools to be able to discern to be able to make uh, informed judgments. But I think in order to do that, we do need to give them a, a secure knowledge base to build from. So I don't think it's uh, necessarily a, a turning towards knowledge that has been a, a problem in that. Uh, although I think perhaps we, we do tend towards a, a maths and English focus very much with the younger children. I think that... Being able to help children to see the world that we live in today in the context of history and in the context of scientific understanding is actually really important for them to be able to know how to discern whether they're, what they're reading is in fact news that they, is reliable, how they can find reliable sources for news, who's likely to be trustworthy, and how to make discerning judgments about what they hear and what they read is, is hugely important. Mm. I saw a talk recently by Yuval Harari, who wrote Sapiens, and he said, 
the old saying that you can fool all people some of the time and some people all of the time no longer stands. It's pretty easy now to fool all of the people more or less all of the time with the different technologies we have, with the way that we have divisions sort of emerging and, and, and these echo chambers and so on. And I think that our schools um, remain one of the last places where you can do the only thing that you can to combat this kind of um, growing divisions, which is to have public conversations mm. and debates. And I saw some amazing stuff in, with Philosophy for Children. Um, went to a school in Newham in East London where they were doing that, where a group of kids, and they had come from all over um, Europe and other parts of the world and were in this primary school together, and they were discussing identity using this quite cool idea of they had all lived on this island called Asia, and then Asia had been hit by a famine. They had to move to Themia and begin to live with the Themians. And they were having this big conversation about what it would mean to then go there. Do you, are you now a Themian? Um, are you still an Asian? And they had a very complicated and complex conversation. They were six years old. And the secret was that the teacher never at any point told them that what they were saying or thinking was wrong, never tried to correct them, but instead allowed the children to discuss with one another um, and to challenge one another in their opinions. And I think that's the only way that we can yeah. combat misinformation or extremism and to have places where you're able to voice opinions with others who might not agree with them. And that we have so few opportunities to do that in the world today. The Hay Festival is one place maybe that we do have the opportunity. Um, but schools, I feel like, have to be that. And it's kind of an old-fashioned idea, but I think ultimately where you need to get to is to have this sort of a sense of doubt. And now to Tara Westover and her extraordinary life in education. Tara had no school records because she'd never set foot in the classroom and no medical records because her father didn't believe in doctors or hospitals. At 16, she decided to educate herself. At Hay Festival Wales in 2018, she spoke to academic David Runciman about her pursuit of knowledge and where she feels modern education could be going wrong. And it is true that one of the features of the contemporary language of education is people want it to be safe. Um, and I'm not just talking about safe spaces, but there's a general feeling that education needs to be safe in some sense if it's going to work. And your story, I mean, your story is a very dangerous story in lots of ways. I mean, starting in the scrapyard. But also your experience of education is not safe. I mean, nothing about it no. was, was safe. Um, so when you, and you, you have seen more than most people because you've seen these things from more than one side. So when you go to somewhere like Cambridge or Harvard, um, do you think it's too safe? I think probably yes. I mean, safe is a funny thing because I think it always makes people think of physical danger. And I think, you know, we sh people shouldn't be in physical peril in school. And you're not, you're not for physical peril. I'm not peril. for that. Um, but I think maybe... I'm really worried, I suppose, about the institutionalization of, of education. I feel like a lot of people, when you say the word education, what comes to their mind are exams, worksheets, all these kind of passive, hyper-institutionalized things. And the thing is, an education is not the same thing as a school. They're, they're different things. An education is really just the individual's pursuit of understanding. That's all education is. And a school is just the, the thing that we use to try to achieve that. And I feel like a lot of the ways that we try to address the shortcomings of education, maybe we don't have teachers, maybe we're not paying them enough, maybe they're all, maybe we've restricted funding. There's all these issues with education, but one of the ways we try to, re to address that is by standardizing the curriculum. If we can get everybody to the same level, then... But that's... 
again, that's just not really an education. That's completely institutional-based. It's entirely passive. It, it's of great concern, I think, that there's a perception, and it's not false, that you'll kind of, you kind of know what you get out of, out of, out of a university. In the US, it's kind of that trope of you, you put in a Republican and you get out a Democrat. And uh, I think that's a bit alarming. Um, education should be dangerous in the sense that you don't know what, what's going to happen. Mm. And you don't know what the cost is going to be. And, and you give people access to a whole bunch of different ideas. And yeah, they might choose to study something that you don't like. That's the risk. That's what's great about it. They should get to do that. And, and you, should, you should not know what you're going to get out of a process of education. If you do, then it's a conveyor belt, and it's an institution, and it's propaganda. It, it should be dangerous in the sense that you give, ac you give people access to ideas, and they're going to come to different conclusions than you want them to. And that's what makes it unsafe. You know, For me, education was not very safe. It cost me a lot. It cost me half my family. But I think, I think that there's always a price that you pay for real change. And I'm not convinced that if you try to make education safe in the sense of um, of an institution and everything is really monitored and everyone learns the same things and we know what we're going to get out of it. It's hard for me to see how that is an education in any meaningful sense. I think it's I think that that is something else. And so your your story, the tagline of your story, as you just described it, but to take us to the end is, didn't set foot in a classroom before you were 17. At 27, you had a PhD from Cambridge. So that's a pretty amazing 10 years of education. Um, you can't replicate that, and I assume you wouldn't advocate that people should no. <laughs> follow that path. Um, no. So how do you, and so yours is you know, a really distinctive version of encountering education as a thing that you had to fight for, um, you really had to want it, and then every time you, you get to the next level, it's really fresh because you just had no idea what was coming next. You know, we got to know each other at Cambridge, and you were, yeah. you know, unlike other students, you didn't know what the next thing was. And that made it dangerous, and it made it difficult, and it made it really exciting. So how do you, for people who kind of have an expectation that this, their education is a story that runs from four in this country mm. through to 18, and then you know, nearly half of young people now go to university, 21, and increasing numbers of people do masters and so on. This is a long story, and they kind of know it's meant to have a particular arc. How do you... How do you get some of the excitement back? I, the unexpected, like, what, what's, what's going to happen next? I'm, I'm trying the baby steps philosophy where I think, <laughs> again, I wouldn't say to people, well, just check the schools out and everyone should just stay at home until they're 17 and then hope for the best. That's not <laughs> necessarily my view. Or, like, hide the encyclopedias, because if you're really lucky, you'll get a kid who will, like, crawl under the couch and read it. Uh, that's true. If you're really lucky, you will. But that's not necessarily a mo mode. But would it work for everyone? No, it didn't work. It wouldn't work for me. I never did that. Um, but I think, I think it's just in the nature of human beings to care about the things that they feel like they have an investment in, that they have some control over. I think it's why you know child psychologists tell you with your four-year-old that you can tell them, okay, you can take a nap or you can clean your room, and neither one of those choices are great. But it's kind of the illusion of being able to make meaningful decisions about your body and your mind and what you do with it that I think just human beings crave. Nobody likes to be corralled. Nobody likes to be chained up, even in, even in, in their mind or what they're forced to do. So I think the idea that we take something like education that is so much about the individual pursuing knowledge and then give people so little choice over what they learn and how they learn it, yeah, there are going to be things that you have to, quote unquote, force people to learn. But I think. In as much as you can have scope for people to make choices about what they read, you know, 
what poets do you want to read? Yeah, you, we should read some poetry, but there are a lot of poets, so you can pick which ones that you read. What novelist do you want to read? We're going to do novelists in the 1960s, and there's, here's a range, and you can read five of them, or you can read two of them, or whatever. You get to pick. I think it's, it's this feeling that people have that they get to participate in the creation of their mind. And that, I just don't think you can expect people to have any buy-in in any meaningful sense if you, if you don't give them any control over it. And we complain all the time that kids aren't excited about education, and they're not engaged with their teachers, and they're not excited about, their, about what they're learning. And I think, well, when was the last time that you were really excited about something that you were forced to do, you know, that you had no say over? In a way, you, I mean, you've seen many different bits of our political life, but you've seen three kind of environments. You've got rural Idaho. Um, you've got a conservative university, so it's broadly, you know, most people at BYU would have been Republicans, right? But this is <laughs> yes. the, yeah, okay. But this is the, as it were, the educated bit. And then Cambridge, Harvard, what Americans would call liberal, what we would call something else, but, you know, the, uh, that side of the political spectrum. And we do know increasingly that education is one of the great dividers in politics. Whether you did or didn't go to university was the big divider in Brexit, the big divider in the Trump vote. And a lot of people are really troubled by the thought of how you bridge that divide. I mean, what, mm. how do people across these different worlds talk to each other? So you see, and, most, and part of the problem is very few people move across that. Like, and, and the journey that you've made is incredibly rare. So you, you probably have a different perspective. So how do people, or what's going wrong that people cannot see what the world looks like from the other side of the education divide? They just don't, they don't even understand it. I think there's two things going on there. One is we say that, that education is, uh, should be equal and that everyone should have equal access to it, but nothing in our policy, or very few things in our policy reflect that. So schools are not equal. No matter where the funding comes from, they're just not, and not even if they're funded by the government, they're not equal. And that, that's definitely true in the US. I think it's true here. And um, so we, we just immediately kind of drop the ball on that and, and, and allow, allow the basic education that people get to be vastly different based on economic and geographical and probably on racial factors. And so that's a huge issue. That's immediately going to separate it out so that people who get a really good education are, are a certain type of people. They have a certain kind of identity. They have a certain type of interest. You've written a lot about education as an interest group. That's a huge problem. You cannot sell to people that education is a universal good and then deny them meaningful access to it and say, well, education is just a good all on its own, and we should respect anyone with an education. And when you're denying these people, they don't really have a meaningful shot at it. So that's a, that's a serious problem. I think the other thing about education is this institutionalization issue. Because again, if you know what you're getting out of it, and it is not completely distinguishable from pop propaganda, and it is so institutionalized, again, that is going to be something that is, that is going to separate the people with an education from other people in, in meaningful ways. And not in meaningful ways that they can communicate with each other and understand each other and, and have debates, because they're actually coming from just completely different walks of life. Mm. And so, I, I mean, I think, I also dislike this idea that we've tied it to institutions so much, because in education, should be something that people feel like they can pursue on their own. And I, I think, again, if, if you raise people with this passive idea of education, that what an education is is exams and worksheets, I think it just seeps into the culture, the idea that you can't learn things. And that, you know, when I was going to write the book, I had a lot of people, it's just, for one, it's just in the air that you have to go get an MFA and you have to have all of this tutelage to learn how to write. And I feel kind of lucky that, you know, my dad, for all his nutty ideas, 
one of the things he would say to us all the time is, you can learn anything better than someone else can teach it to you. And he probably meant that a bit as other people don't know anything. But I don't think it has to mean that. I think it can mean, I think, I think the principle there is that if you want to learn about literature, you will learn more if you want to learn it with just a book than you will if you don't want to learn it and a Nobel laureate spends a year trying to teach you. And I, I really think that. Uh, if you want to learn it, that's the difference between being able to do it and not. And so I think, in a way, I think it does harm us that, again, education is so institutionalized. When we talk about educated people, we mean people who've been to universities. And increasingly, we mean people who've been to like a couple universities. We don't even count all the universities. They don't all count. And that's odd. And, and, and one of the things that you're reading your book comes across very clearly if you're on, as it were, the educated side of this line is you know, there is always a danger that people who have been educated think they know better because mm. it comes with that kind of cachet attached to it. And therefore, they think they know the other side of the politics better than the other side of the politics knows them. Yeah. And that's not clear at all. It's not clear that people with the education understand the people without any better, and in fact, probably they don't understand them no, at all. I make myself unpopular here, but I hear from a lot of people, they take that, that, I think it was Michael Gove, that people have had enough of experts. And I know a lot of people who feel like the only thing to be learned from major political events like Brexit or Trump is that there's a large group of people who are incredibly ignorant, and that's, that explains everything about the world, and that they don't care about knowledge. I don't, I just don't think that that explains it. You know. If I go back to Idaho and I say, oh, yeah, I, and it comes up that I did a year at Harvard, it's like they speak about Harvard and Idaho in hushed terms. There's an unbelievable amount of respect for Harvard, you know. But, um, but they don't necessarily feel that the, that the people who are coming from those institutions are representing their interests or care about their interests or understand their interests. And they're not wrong. They're not. <laughs> um, and also, there, I mean, this is something, if, you, if anyone read Thinking Fast and Slow, Kahneman writes a lot about this, where um, there are types of experts that their expertise makes them less accurate. If the, if, if the fields that they're making predictions in are essentially generally governed by chaos, what happens is the little bit that they know makes them overconfident, and they're actually less reliable. And politics is one of those things. And other things is finance, that he says, actually, you're kind of better off not knowing a lot, because you, your hubris will cost you more than your ignorance. And uh, so I think in some ways, yeah, I, I don't know if it's a hostility to intelligence. I don't think it's that they're worshiping at the altar of ignorance. I think that they have a, a fairly well-founded fear that, that that there is a difference between them and the people who are making decisions that is not, not necessarily about intelligence. It might be a little bit that, uh, but, but it is also more malicious and more insidious than that and has a lot more to do with people protecting their own interests as a sac while sacrificing theirs. Thank you for joining us. You can find over 8,000 more recordings of Hay Festival events over on the Hay Player on our website. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and next week our theme is Theology. <laughs>